a sip instead of yours. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at ChristianLivingMag.com. morning everybody how are you guys doing today so we are in the 18th lesson here in genesis great times going through 18 lessons in we're only in chapter 15 this is going to be another one of those full chapter lessons so we're going to go through the whole chapter it's a beefy chapter so be prepared there's some some awkward stuff that happens inside of this there's some interesting stuff that happens inside of this there's some pieces that really can make you scratch your head and you could sit there and and go down some real wild tangents if you wanted to that happened inside of this. So we're, we're going to get the main the main understandings of what's happening. We're going to look at some of the funky stuff and, and discuss the funky stuff a little bit and just kind of cruise through it. So it's a good time. It's the entire chapter, chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. This is visions and covenant. So let's go ahead and let's let's do it. Let's dig into it in the ESV. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet 
complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right, so this breaks down into, really, we're just going to break it into two sections, two spots here. The two different visions and section. First of all, we have the first encounter, which is verses one to six. I know this reads like it could be one encounter. It's not. And there's clues inside of it that tell us that this is not one encounter. This is two encounters. So we have a single encounter on the first one, one to six. And this one's about children, right? And then the second encounter, which happens verses seven to 21. And this is about the covenant and God making the covenant. So let's dig in. Verse one, verse one, just the single first verse. And there's already stuff happening. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, or Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Lots of things, lots of things inside of this one single verse. First of all, we start with the word after. When we discuss after, clearly it's it's about after the, the battle that ensued, you know, after the battle. After meeting with Melchizedek, after meeting with the king of Sodom and going over these things, it could also include after leaving Ur, because that's actually brought up again here, right? I brought you out of Ur. And so after all of these things, after all of this turmoil, when in and we bring that up just simply, how many times do you go through things in life that you're you're doing things for God and, and you're waiting on things to happen? Like you're expecting something to happen somewhat quickly. You get the call to some kind of a ministry or to do something and and you feel that drive to go and do and it doesn't quite pan out exactly how you expect. And it seems to take a lot longer and you have other things happen. It's not a direct path. You know, we get a call and we just kind of expect and anticipate this more direct path and it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen like that. Things happen around that. And through the way, God prepares you for what's to come. He puts other things through through your path, or he allows things to happen that prepare you or to to have you help other people on the way, whatever it is, right? Different things happen along the way. And so after all of this had happened, the word of the Lord came. Now we can stop here and we're going to stop here for a second because this is a, a really big piece and we see it all over this chapter, all over chapter 15. And it's something that it's something that we miss a lot or we don't have a, a, a great understanding of. And it's something that I think we need to discuss for a moment because it changes. It changes the way that you're going to read the Old Testament if you don't have this understanding here. So in Old Testament time, the way God spoke to people was different than per se how he speaks to people today. Now, you know, that was part of the the promise was I'm going to send my Holy Spirit upon people 
they're not going to need to be told because they're going to know because it's written on their heart and it's written on their heart via the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks through it and makes everyone a you know, potential prophet, gives everyone gifts of the spirit. Not everyone is a prophet, but, you know, makes everyone have the word of the Lord coming through them. God writes it on our hearts so that we don't have to wait for a prophet to come and tell us what to do that God's telling us because God's already speaking. OK, but we do have pastors who help lead, who helps us guide us, helps us understand how do we understand God speaking. You know, we're told to test the spirits because there's there's other implications that happen from that. But the way we communicate with God today, realistically, the way God communicates with us today is different. It's more direct and personal to the vast majority than it was back in the Old Testament times. So in the Old Testament time, you would have prophets. You would have God speaking to somebody who would then go out and spread, share the word and, and it would go out. And then God would write down or, or give his law or his word, it would be written down and it would be shared and it would spread out. And most of it was broader, right? It was about the, the people group as a whole. Okay. Most of the commands, most of the information was less about an individual and more about a broad scale. There were individual pieces, right? God did talk to people and say, hey, this was about you specifically. And we see that throughout scripture. But when we see that, we see things like this, where it says the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. We read this today in a modern mindset. And what we hear is, or what comes to mind is that internal monologue. Like the Holy Spirit is speaking inside of the head of, right? If you're, if you hear from the Lord and, and, you know, it's, it's one of those weird things. You just know God's speaking to you, right? It's hard to describe, especially on the internet, because you're going to get all sorts of fun stuff. But anyway, you know, we, we get that, that concept, right? But that's not what's being said. In fact, if we go throughout the Old Testament, the word of the Lord is given physical attributes, it's a, it's a, it's a theophany, whether it's a theophany or a Christophany. Okay. It's either a, a pre-incarnate Jesus coming or an angelic vision or, you know, God in the flesh in some way, right? It is a representation of God. Some people say word of the Lord. That's a definition that's showing that it's an angel, a messenger who came and was telling what God was wanting to say. Some people would say it's a Christophany and it's pre-incarnate Jesus. You know, it's the word. That's why we get, if you think back to first, you know, to John, the gospel of John in the beginning was the word like that's it, it brings up visions for a reason. John didn't just pull that out from midair. There was a reason that that came through and it comes through the understandings all throughout the Old Testament. And here we start to see this. And this is one of the major players of how we understand this. We also say this very directly here because continue on for just a second here. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, came to, okay, maybe this is an auditory thing, in a vision. The term vision is very important here. One, it leads us in the indication that it's a dream or a vision, you know, you'd have something like that. But the word vision means something very specific. You see things, not just hear things. You see things. This is something, this is an, a representation of God that Abram was able to 
see. It's visual in nature, not an internal monologue. Okay, very important to keep that in your head. Now, let's look at a couple examples, because I'm saying this goes through the Old Testament and the word of the Lord coming has physical attributes. There's several reasons and several places where we can pull this. I just pulled a few. Okay, I just pulled a few out here. So let's take a look at these so that we get this idea. First of all, first Samuel, let's look at first Samuel. Let's begin first Samuel three. Okay, first Samuel three is so we get an idea of what's going on here. First Samuel three. Now the boy, Samuel, so this is when Samuel was young. Okay, if we, I, if you've been in, uh, in churches for very long, you've probably heard this story. Samuel hears his name called. He goes out. He says, yes. Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. You're, you're, you know, <laughs> having bad dreams. And then after a little bit, Eli finally realizes, oh, wait a minute. I think I know what's going on, which, by the way, always feels weird to most people. We don't really know why he was. We should know why, because it's it's uh, it's written in the beginning of this chapter. This section starts off with the here's why Eli doesn't understand originally, initially what's going on. So first Samuel three. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Catch this. And the word of the Lord I'm big smile. The word of the Lord, not just us, not just a spoken, but the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Semicolon, which mind you, OK, that was added because this is the way it was how we would read it. But it's to make sure that we understand what's being said. OK, they didn't have the punctuation. But the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. There was no frequent vision. And this isn't describing like direction, like the vision of the church. Our vision for our church is to go and save the lost. Okay, great. Thank you for being as generic as humanly possible. Like, no, no, no. There was no frequent vision. They didn't see God often in this stage. Okay. Things that were going on, God wasn't coming down and talking very often. Fast forward to seven more verses, to verses eight to ten. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli. Here I am, for you called me. See, we, we know the story, right? For you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and laid down in his place. Verse 10, here's where it's important. Verse 10. And the Lord came and stood. And the Lord came and stood. This is still the word of the Lord, right? This Lord came and stood calling as at the other times. Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Fast forward to verses 19 to 21 in the same chapter for Samuel 3. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. How do we know the Lord was with him? And let none of his words fall on the ground. Well, we know because of verse 21, but let's get there. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Again, how would they know? Verse 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by what? By the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're seeing physical attributes. Let's jump to Jeremiah. Jeremiah also has indications of this. Jeremiah 1. 
at the beginning, right? Jeremiah 1, 4. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, saying stuff. Okay, that's great. We can say that could just be auditory, except when we get five verses ahead of here and we look at verse 9. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me. And verse 9, still the same section. The word of the Lord came and said this, and I argued with him saying, but I can't speak. I don't know what to do. And the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. It wasn't just an auditory thing. So we have visual representation and now an actual physical touching from the visual representation. This is a big deal. And yes, as I pointed out earlier, this should make sense to us when we read the New Testament, especially the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, and in him was life, and there was the light of men. Fast forward to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lots of th- stuff here. Okay. John takes the understanding of what we see through the Old Testament. The word of the Lord is a visual, physical representation of God, whether that's a Christophany. Which, by the way, John takes it as such. If this is happening, it's not necessarily a an angel appearing. However, there are, are there are those who would say this is a representation of an angel. It's 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 an angelic messenger. I don't care. It doesn't matter which which theology you want to pull on that. the The idea I want to get across here that is important is this is a visual and potentially very physical representation of. God and God's message coming. It's not just an auditory experience. This is something that is there, visual and potentially tangible, something you can actually really touch and can touch you. Now, what does the word of the Lord say? See, I told you we're big stuff happening just in this one verse, first verse, 20 minutes in, we are still on the first verse. Okay. He says, fear not, fear not, Abram. Which, by the way, we always want to have this mindset that, okay, when an angel appears and when God appears, everyone's terrified and, it's, and they're freaking out a little bit, which, okay, there, there's good reason for that, okay? There's good reason that we have that understanding, that we have that mindset. Great, great. But think of this a little bit further in the context of what he continues to say and what just happened, okay? Kings came in and destroyed some really evil kingdoms. Okay. Not only did they do that, but if you go back to last week's lesson, they took out a lot of different people groups, a lot of the different giant clans that God wants Israel later to continue to wipe out because they they go against God anyway. And so Abram came to rescue his nephew, takes up arms and goes and destroys these powerful kings who, I mean do what the Israelites would have had to have done later anyway, wiping out the giant clans. Okay. And goes through. And then he just goes to save his, his nephew Lot. 
who's just going to go and embrace Sodom all the more. And so Abram's probably feeling a little terrified. Uh, God and or king, whatever royalty, right? The, the way that this is phrased, the way this goes around is it's like royalty coming in to either dish out punishment for bad actions or hand out rewards for good actions. And you being a, a servant of that person, you don't know which one you're going to get. This is is phrased in a way that is supposed to be comforting. Fear not, Abram. You don't have to worry. This is a good meeting. This is a good interaction. Okay. You you met with Melchizedek. He offered blessings and praise. This is good. This is a good meeting. I am your shield. Kind of like what Melchizedek was saying. He delivered you through this. That It's actual wordplay inside of the Hebrew. It's wordplay here. I am your shield. I protected you. I was the one who protected you through this. Your reward shall be very great. Hey, Sip and Studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. Can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity, and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer, and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. You can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. Verses 2 to 3. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God. Now, see, we see this change here. Okay. After all this stuff is after all these things that he's gone through, God appears. He says, fear not. Your reward is great. I protected you through this and I'm going to reward you for what you've done. This is good. Your rewards are great. Abram before would set up altars, would do these things. This is great. God is going to do these things for me. Well, now we see a, a, a slight shift, a slight shift. In Abram. And we see a little bit more of the humanity and the things that we t- tend to do. We get excited and then it doesn't happen instantly. So what do we do? God, what's going on? I thought this was happening. It's exactly what we see here. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Remember, that was the primary, primary piece. I'm going to give you a child. Not only that, your offspring are going to be innumerable. If someone could count the dust specks on earth, it would be like that. Okay, I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, so he's continuing. Behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. So Lord God also could be translated and is in certain texts, sovereign God. So you're you're the one who is righteous, the one who is ruling, the one who is worthy to rule. Okay, that's what this is saying. 
show it shows that Abram's complaints come from a place of faith, right? He's understanding I am in service of you. So you're the one who can do these things. I'm trusting that you're going to, but you still haven't done it. What are you going to give me that that matters? By the time I die, it, it's just going to a member of my own household. You promised me a child that could then continue on the legacy. What more could you give me? I, it's not even going to go because there's no child. There's no child left to give it to. It doesn't matter. Okay. So this is coming from a place of faith and understanding that he he is under God. He says, what are you going to give me? That The child is what I'm waiting for, right? And now the heir, Eliezer, excuse me, Eliezer, however you want to pronounce it, whatever. It was a common concept inside of ancient Near East societies and ancient societies in general because everything would pass down through the generations. Well, if somebody doesn't have a child or the children die, because the death rate of, of infants and young children was very high, very, very high. So even if somebody was able to have children, it didn't mean that the children were always going to survive. Okay. Not to mention then if they were picked up in war, if they died in battle, anything like that, all this stuff happened. And so if the parent was to outlive, if there wasn't a child, or if the parent was outliving the child, it was common practice for them to essentially appoint an heir from inside the house. There was a, a servant or when we say servant, we always want to think like slaves. And, and OK, I guess to some degree, yes. But there was somebody who had a, like a higher ranking servant inside the house that had the favor of the master and they would you know, appoint them as heir and as reward for taking care of because they had their trust. Right. And so as a reward for taking on the son responsibilities and doing the things that a son would do, they then would take over the household when that person died and they would inherit all of these things. And so this this heir outside of Damascus, it was just a really common thing for someone who took over those duties when a son wasn't actually available. We get to four and five and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Okay, so the God was already there. And so this is saying God approaches even more. God is there and he was approaching him even more. Says this, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So he's continuing on with the, the giving him confidence and reassuring him. I am still giving you a child. This man is not taking over for you. Okay. You are to have your own child. This is one of those hard, hard things in God's time, not our time. It's a really difficult thing to do when you're expecting things to happen in a certain way. And God's timing is different than our timing. And we have to go through some extra stuff before that happens. It's really, really challenging and it tests your faith. Okay. God's saying it's, you're going to have a child it's still happening. Verse five. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them. That's quite the concept. He's already talked about dust, right? Back in chapter 13, 13, 16, he talks about the offspring as dust. He does that again in chapter 28, by the way. And how now here he talks about as stars, as numer, you know, you won't be able to count them like the stars. Does that again in chapter twenty-two? Does it again in chapter twenty-six? Does it, and then and and then later in chapter thirty-two talks about the sand of the sea. Multiple different ways of describing. There's going to be so many. 
you won't be able to count them. You won't be able to count them. They will be so great and so vast. Verse 6. Well, finish that. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Okay. If you're able to count the stars, so shall your offspring be. Verse 6. Where this goes from here. And he, meaning Abram, and he believed the Lord. He believed Yahweh. He believed God. He trusted. He had faith in what God was saying. And he, meaning God, counted it to him as an Abram, righteousness, as righteousness. The belief, the trust, the faith that God, this is what you said, so I'm trusting you, I'm believing you, I'm acting out in faith going forward. God counts that as righteousness. Which moves us to the second encounter. Okay, second time, second piece here. Because this is a, a separate encounter. It's really easy to read this and come up with the idea that this is a single encounter. This is a single piece. This is actually two separate pieces. Because the first piece, if you notice, it's nighttime. It's nighttime. The stars are out. Come out with me. Look here. The stars are out. If you can count the stars, you're going to see it. Something changes here. Because we're going to find out that it's evening time. It's a different encounter. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord. So he's just that Moses is just continuing the narration, right? He's just continuing the narration on. He's, he's kind of lumping these two together. But again, we see that these are two different encounters. So the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Okay. It's not directly stated, but again, it's separate. In verse 12, we see that the sun is going down. Stars aren't out yet. Now, I am. When we see here, God's God decreeing here. I am. Now, this is an ancient royal stance. God is making a direct, in a way that, that humanity would understand it, right? The people of the day. This is written in a way that we're, we're going to understand. He's making a direct decree. He's starting the covenant here. And this is a direct decree. When you, when you announce who I am, who you are, I have the authority to do this. I am the Lord who, and then he does the, the historical prologue of setting the stage about what he's about to do. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Okay, he sets the stage, and this is a way of like a royal decree pronouncing that that something official is about to happen. Okay, you have to declare your authority and why you can do this. Verse eight, but he said, being Abram again, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, this this kind of complaint, like... <laughs> You told me this before, and I went around and walked it, and guess what? I still don't own the place. Like, you know, how am I supposed to know that this is real? How am I supposed to know that this is actually going to happen when when we've done this dance? We've done this. You told me I was going to have a kid. I still don't have a kid. I trust you it's going to happen, but I still don't have him. And, and you're telling me I have this land, but I, I've walked the land. I've done this stuff. I still don't have it. How am I to know this is going to happen? It's mirroring that other encounter, right? Mirroring of that other encounter. But this is still a sign 
Abram takes God seriously. Okay. This is a sign of his complaint coming from a place of faith because it's showing that he takes God seriously. Nine to 11. He said to him, so God's saying to Abram, bring me a heifer, three years old, female goat, three years old, and a ram, three years old. Why they're all three years old? Well, they're they're full on age. They're proper. They're fully grown. Everything's good to go. This doesn't necessarily talking about sacrifices, but these do all fall under the category of, of sacrificial animals. So, okay. And a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half. Now, he kind of glazes over and he, he skips, right? They call this a skip. And he skips why he cuts them in half. You know, we don't see God telling him to go ahead and cut these in half, okay? But this also wasn't described as come and, and create, do a sacrifice, right? Lay a sacrifice out. This isn't saying lay a sacrifice out. So the understanding comes from a little bit later. There's some some other Near Eastern texts that describe some of this. And then there's also, we see in, in parts of the Old Testament, we'll pull up here in Jeremiah in a moment, how we get this concept of what's actually happening here. And it was a cultural thing. He understood the culture of what was what was being done. And so just kind of glazes over it like people just people just know. When you make this kind of agreement and this kind of contract, you just know this is what was going to happen. And that's been lost to time. But this is what's what's going on here. So so he brings them like 10, verse 10. He brought all the, him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. So they flop them over on top of each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So let's take a look at Jeremiah 34, 18. This gives us an idea of what's going on and the understanding of the day. Okay. Jeremiah 34, 18. And the men who transgressed my covenant, people who didn't fulfill the covenant, didn't fulfill their part of it, went against it, and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf, like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. It was a Near Eastern tradition and just a way to, it would do it. When you set up a covenant, it's kind of like a blood oath or, you know, whatever. You can't go against it. You, you, you make a blood oath or you, a, a pact or you whatever it is. You know, it was one of those things that, hey, you go against this, you're going to die. And you cut the animals in half as a representation of this is going to happen if we go against this. Okay, this is a big deal. Anybody who passes through the animals who were cut in half are now bound by the terms of the oath and the covenant. That's what's happening here. So Abram's aware, clearly, he's cutting them, cutting them in half, setting it up appropriately. This is all happening the way it needs to happen. Okay. The birds of prey coming down and swooping in and eating it. The covenant hasn't been fulfilled yet. So we can't just have it all be defiled and broken and destroyed like that from the birds. It wasn't just set out there for the birds. And so Abram goes out and, and rushes them away. Now, them scaring it away is a couple different things here. Some people take it as just a, a, a obvious, you know, take it for what it is, just straight reading. He's just scaring away the birds so they don't destroy the pieces to, to take care of the covenant, right? Okay, that's great. But there's also potentially a piece here that's, that's symbolic. And some people take that as such, as this is a, a major symbolic piece that the birds of prey would symbolize Egypt and Pharaoh. And Abram brushing them away and symbolizes the fatherliness of God protecting and freeing the Israelites coming through this. 
And some of them go through this in, in really interesting ways, pointing out how some of the Egyptian gods are pointed out as being birds and birds of prey that would come and do this and yada, yada. It's I think it's reading a little much into it. They're trying to find something that's not necessarily there. But there's enough people to believe it that we're going to share that so that you can get that that understanding that, hey, there are people who believe this and teach this and, and go off of that. And it's not far enough off that it, it's going to you know create anything bad inside of theology. It's just I personally think they, they're reading into it a little bit. I think this is just Abram being realistic and saying, hey, this is meant for a covenant and it needs to be in good shape if we're going to make a covenant with God. Having a respect for who the covenant is with. All right. Keep going. 12 to 16. As the sun was going down. Now, see, this is how we know this is a separate incident. As the sun was coming down, it already had been. It was already nighttime. So perhaps this is an elongated single incident, but this is describing two pieces to the incident. However, it would be. It might have been in the night the word of the Lord came and this happened. And then into the next day, these other things were happening. And then as this, as the sun started to go down, so this might've been within a 24 hour period of time. It's possible. Why not? It's possible. Why not? Sun going down that depending on the time of the year in this region, you know, like five, somewhere between five 30 and eight o'clock. Okay. I, I live in Idaho. It's a really awkward spot. <laughs> Whenever we travel, I'm always shocked how early the sun goes down, especially in the summertime. We're in a spot that if you look at, at the map or you look at a globe, it looks like we should be in Pacific time, but we're in mountain time. And so the sun goes down an hour later here than, than it does for a lot of people in a lot of places. And so summertime, that sun's up 9, 30, 10 o'clock. We get to other places in the world and the sun goes down at 7, 38 o'clock every day, regardless. Like it's just, this is when the sun goes down and it throws me off. Like I, it takes me a little while to adjust. Right. But in this part of the world, that's when the sun goes down. You know, you're talking probably seven o'clock ish sun starts to go down. It's like seven o'clock, seven, eight o'clock. Okay, great. Okay. Sun's going down as the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell on Abram. Pause. This deep sleep is an indication of a divine encounter. Okay. These deep sleeps, because as the sun goes down, if you, I, I would encourage you check out some of these cultures. If you, if you have an opportunity, go, go somewhere over there, check out some of these cultures from that region and, and, and see their lively evening and nighttime cultures. Well, at least evening cultures. Okay. You're, you're, you don't fall asleep when the sun goes down, it starts to cool off and life happens. Dinner comes, happens at this time of the day. Like it's not a shutdown time. It's a get out and, and do stuff time. So this is an indication of a divine encounter. And we see this multiple times throughout the scriptures that, hey, when these things happen, it is a, an indication of a divine encounter. Let's take a look at earlier in Genesis chapter two, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, Adam, and while he slept, took one of his ribs. So this is a divine encounter there. Let's bump forward just a little bit further. Let's take a look at Daniel eight eighteen. another indication here happened multiple times in Daniel. Very different way, though. Very different way. Here, Genesis 2, God makes him fall asleep so he can do something to him. Genesis 15 has him fall asleep to give him this, this vision so he can tell him this divine encounter to give him more broad information in a vision state rather than something that he can just tell him. So he wants him to, to encompass this and get a greater understanding of what's happening rather than just words he wants to show him. Daniel 
it's a little bit different stuff. Take a look, Daniel 8.18. And when he had spoke to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. <laughs> like, Daniel would just pass out. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 no. Wake up. Like, we now's not the time. It's not that kind of time. Right? So, little, little different, but... These great sleeps are an indication of a divine encounter and something God is speaking through them or to them in a divine way. Okay, that's that's what this indication is. Now, then we get a, a further indication of what's happening here directly after that. And behold, a dreadful and dark or great darkness fell upon him, meaning Abram. This great darkness, it symbolizes the pain, the dread, the suffering, you know, some would say evil. Darkness represents evil, right? But it's it's in this indication, it's it's representing the struggle and the immense darkness and and pain and struggling and suffering that's going to be happening. This is, represents the turmoil that the that the Israelites are going to have in Egypt that was to come. Okay, so he's falling asleep to have this, and he just gets into this great darkness, this great horrible darkness. Verse thirteen. Then the Lord said to Abram. No, for certain. Like, I'm not even playing anymore, right? This is just one of those, like, hey, just, I'm not even just going to tell you. You need to know this is going to happen. The die is cast, however you want to say it, right? This is what will be. Embrace this. It just is what it is. Understand this. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners. In a land that is not theirs. Okay, well, remember, God's already said this land is yours and your offsprings. They're going to sojourn in an area that's not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Let's pause there for a second. So again, 400 years. So, well, let's back up just a little bit. The Lord said, so this is inside of that dream state. Okay. So God's showing him a vision of what's happening and telling him what's going to happen. So inside of this dream state vision, he describes the time that's coming in Egypt. He's getting that sensation, that feeling, right? He has that dread, that dark, great darkness, that dread is upon him. And the Lord is telling him and potentially showing him right in this vision, what's going on and what's happening. Okay. What's coming up in Egypt. It's very obvious that this is Egypt because <laughs> it mirrors that. Now the 400 years, again, we say Egypt. If you, if you look in Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years at the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So it's a round number. That's, that's normal. That happens. It's that is that is a very normal thing to have these kind of round numbers. Okay. God says he's going to bring judgment on them. Okay. He's going to bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions, the plagues, everything else that happens, and then the the the, the spirit of death comes through. I mean, like it's judgment happens, right? <laughs> Right. And then they come out with great possessions. They come out with their lives and they end up getting the land. And it's, 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 I can't say it's wonderful because it ended up, yes, but there was a lot of hardship through that. You know, that's, that's kind of how it is. We, we always say 
we get this, this is a great thing, but then we don't necessarily count the cost and realize that it it's going to hurt sometimes to get there. So they have to go through these things. As for you, verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Now, some people have a real struggle with, with this, go to the fathers. Well, his fathers were pagans. So some people really read into that. Don't really read into that. This is, again, is just one of those, it's, it's like a, it's a colloquial, colloquialism. There we go. If I can speak, it's, it's just an expression. It's a saying, hello, these things are all over the text, all over the scriptures. We see this all the time where, where like, and this is how some people get some really funky ideas of what angels are because they, they read things and they don't understand that that was an, an expression for something else from the day. And so we, we have to understand the culture. We have to understand some of the language. We have to understand some of these things. This is just a, like, when you die, <laughs> he's just being polite. When, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Like, I'm not going to say you're going to die. It's just a nice way of saying that, right? Like, when you shall go to your fathers in peace, you don't have to go into that turmoil. You don't have to go into that situation. You go to them in peace. And you shall be buried in a good old age. In fact, the, the Hebrew very direct is just gray haired, <laughs> like lots, lots of wisdom, right? You're going to go there as a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now that line is, is really where things get sticky and get interesting as the Amorites, but let's, let's go back just a little bit further, 400 years, the round number, it's 430 years in, in Exodus. Good old age. Yeah. Abram, Abram dies at 175 years old. We see that at Genesis 25. Let's look, Genesis 25, 7, 8. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a, same phrasing here, good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Great. Okay. Fourth generation. At this point, it was considered the ideal age. Lifespan was about 110 years. So four generations out would be 440 years. So 400 years to 430 years fits perfectly within that. This is great. We get that based off of Joseph's life in Genesis 50, 50, 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt and he he and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years. So normal generational span at that point. Okay, great. Now the sin of the Amorites, it's kind of an interesting one. There's a couple, couple, there's a few different takes on what this is. People who, who take the Bible and they want to read it and they go through things and I can appreciate it to some degree. They take the text and they want to appropriate the text just as what the text says. Beautiful. However, they oftentimes when they, they do that, they have a tendency to take out the supernatural elements and they they try to explain away supernatural elements. So we have to be careful with some of that. If the Bible clearly is talking about supernatural, we need to allow for supernatural to be there. If you look at the world, it should be pretty evident that things are happening behind the scenes that uh, it's not so easy to explain all the time. Okay, So allow the scriptures to say what the scriptures say. But still, some take this, the, the Amorites, to be a placeholder for the 10 nations that we're about to get to. We see that in verses 19 to 21. So Amorites could be a placeholder for all of them. However, the Amorites are in the list. And that's also part of the reason why they say it's just a placeholder. It's just the easiest one. However, why wouldn't you just say Canaanites at that point? But 
I digress. Others consider this to be a decree of God's timing. Like, hey, I'm going to let them get away with what they're getting away with until these other things happen because you guys are going to go to Egypt and go through all of this. Others still, and I'd say this one might be a little bit more, I don't know what I want, maybe accurate, maybe a little bit more accurate or, or at least have a little bit more to deal with the supernatural elements and things that we link in and we see throughout the rest of the scriptures and, and dealing with certain pieces and elements and things that God wants Israel to deal with. The Amorites were signifiers of the giants and the giant clans throughout that, that God would have the Israelites take care of progressively as they went through and were conquering that kingdom. And that actually seems to make sense here because as they go through, they have to take care of certain clans and certain things that happen along the way. So that one actually seems to make a lot of sense to me is as an indicator, because if you follow the, the lines, when they're told you need to go wipe this out, it's usually because there's giants in there and there it's a giant clan. And, and that goes against God. It's that unholy union that we see in Genesis six. Okay. Let's keep going. 17. When the sun had gone down. Now here's, here's something, this section, I, I spent some time here on really just verse 17, because this is, this is an interesting portion of the scripture and I, people either write about it in a way that it's, they assume that you understand things because it should be plainly obvious or they have no clue. And so they just don't discuss it at all. And so they kind of glaze over so much in this one verse. And I, I want to point some stuff out that I think is happening here and that I think we should we should pay attention to. The sun had gone down. The sun has gone down. So we're we're being brought back to, and this is something that isn't actually really described much in most of the commentaries that I'm that I read and go through. I haven't been able to find this brought out here. The sun is going down. This actually pulls us back out of that vision state. This is pulling us out of that dream state. The sun was setting and he fell into a deep, dark sleep. And this great darkness was overwhelming him. Okay. And God speaks to him and talks to him about these different things. Wonderful. Now we're back to the sun is going down. So some people say the, the, he sees this, 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 the flaming torch and the smoking fire pot. That's still part of the vision. Why? He had cut up the carcasses. That was an actual physical thing that happened. And he laid them out physically done. It's described as an actual action that took place. And now we're seeing, he's seeing something that is likely a representation. It's a representative piece. Okay. That's great. Another theophany going through, but that indicates to us that he's no longer in that dream state. He is pulled out of that dream vision state and the sun has already gone down and it is dark. So he's woken up. And behold, basically, it's not there, but I wish it was because that would be a great way to have this. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. So he's awake out of the vision and he sees something. And again, we lose this in the in the concept of our culture. So I'm going to try to describe this in a way that that should make sense to us. An agreement requires multiple parties. Right. I can't just agree to myself 
when we do that, we get like a, a New Year's resolution that falls apart, right? It never, it doesn't really work. I resolve to be, okay, well, there's nothing to hold, hold you accountable. Well, a covenant is a big deal. And as we saw earlier, the cunning of these animals is an indication that if you pass through this, you are accepting the terms of the covenant. And if you go against the covenant, you shall be done like this. Like, you know, the punishment is you turn into one of these animals. Basically, you get cut in half like you die. Okay, it's a big deal. Well, it takes multiple, takes two to tango, right? It takes at least two parties to substantiate a covenant. You can't just have one. That's a promise, right? But what a covenant is, is two ways. It's two parties. We are not shown that Abram goes through this. We show two indications of God going through this. God shows that he is holding himself accountable and holding himself to the covenant. He's not requiring Abram to do anything. This is 100% on God and God is holding himself accountable. Now, we, we have the vision here of the smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And these are, well, they're not told. We're not told what they're supposed to represent. I think the torch is pretty obvious. And most, most people and most commentators agree that the torch is pretty obvious, right? It's the light of God that shines a light upon your path. It's a light upon your feet, right? It gives you this indication that he shows the, 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 the light shining light of God in the path and, and it's good and holy, but the smoking fire pot is kind of debated. You know, people people are always wondering, and there's a bunch of different concepts of, of what that is. And most of the time, it, it seems to be a representation of bad. People seem to, to take this as an indication of God's wrath and God's judgment. And, and they kind of pull it back towards Egypt again, you know, because again, this is after the vision of Egypt and it's God's judgment pouring out on Egypt and, and those who go against God and, and those who try to prevent Abram's people, the Israelites, from getting what it is. And that shows that that wrath and that rage. Well, I see where they get this. Okay. A smoking fire pot. So a fire pot, there's a couple different things of what a fire pot can be and is. A fire pot can basically be a Dutch oven that you place over the fire to cook out of. But I don't think that's what's being described here. A fire pot can also be, and is usually, and, and what seems to be an indication here is kind of like a fire pit. It's a portable fire pit. It's what you would put the fire into so that you can cook on and then you can move it around. It was used for like, it's usually enclosed. And so they made a lot of breads and a lot of different things inside of these. And so it's like a portable oven kind of thing. Okay. But it's smoking indicating that there's still fire going into it. Now we read this in today's mind. And I think this is part of the reason why so many see this and, and say it has to be God's wrath and God's judgment. And it's bad because we see fire and we see smoke and we think bad, you know, fire and brimstone and smoke. That's a, these are expressions of hell. And this is horrible, hor horrific things, but it wasn't then the concept of fire and smoke and these things, God is, is described with these all the time throughout the old Testament. He rides on, on some of these things. Like it was normal for most deities. Like when people would describe deities and especially when we get the concepts of God is like, nah, well, if you're going to say that it's always a depiction of God coming down and doing this, this is like, no, no, this is the real God that's doing it though. <laughs> you might see this and, and you're God and this is how you recognize God. So we're going to describe God this way too, but it's, it's the God of the Bible that comes and does this stuff. So, you know, fire is not necessarily a bad thing. Some would, some 
commentators talk about, oh, there's the refining fire, there's the purifying fire. Fire is oftentimes spoken as being a purifying thing and a good thing. Fire was a, an indication of holiness, right? That was an indication of deities as they they produced their fire and they destroyed with fire. Like it wasn't necessarily just straight bad. And so I think we need to be careful about associating this as just a the good of God and the punishment of God going through this. God's holding himself accountable. And I think both of them are indications of God's holiness and righteousness, just in ways that we don't necessarily understand and grasp today. And unfortunately, it's somewhat been lost over time because it isn't directly in the text. We're never actually told anywhere what the fire pot or something like that is supposed to represent. And that's why so many people say it's it's representation of hell and judgment because it's like being thrown into an oven, I guess. I, I don't, you know, it's one of those pieces that you just kind of go, we're not sure, but that's okay. The, the concept I want us to take away from this is that we have two indications of, of God's righteousness, of God, two indications of theophany, representations of God on earth, okay, passing through the covenantial pathway indicating that God is making the covenant and he is holding himself accountable because you can't just have one go through the pathway. You, you have to have at least two. And God does it with himself to show that he is holding himself accountable and that this is not on Abram. Okay. That's what's being said here. What they represent other than God's righteousness. We're, we're not sure. We're not sure. And that's okay. I think we need to be very hesitant to just jump to the conclusion that it's it's his wrath and judgment. Let's wrap this up. 18 to 21. On that day, the Lord, meaning Yahweh, made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt. Pause there for a second. The term here for ri river in Hebrew is not the primary term for river. It actually is like a subsidiary of river. And so most people don't take this as meaning literally the Nile, but maybe the most eastern offshoot of the Nile. Okay. To the great river, so this is the main one, the river Euphrates. Okay. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. There's the list of the 10 tribes. This is longer than the list of seven tribes that you see in Deuteronomy 7. Uh, you can look that up yourself, 7-1 if you want. Both are meant to signify the completion and the completeness of the area. Though this list does seem to comprise of the nomadic tribes, the giant clans, and the settled groups throughout the land. Now, some people hold issue and say Israel never really held this. There's actually indication that this was held at one point by at least more or less. <laughs> you know, it was really held by the control of at one point all there. So it, it fits. It does work. We're out of time, so we're not going to be able to go through all of that. But it does indicate that this is, you know, you're taking that land and that that is the land that was held. So we're good. So what can we take away? First of all, before the Holy Spirit was given out to all believers of Jesus, God spoke to people differently. And sometimes that meant physically approaching them, like coming in a way that that is tangible and approaching them. When God approached and spoke to Abram on these times, Abram shared his complaints and concerns with, with him, with God, though they came from a place of faith and belief in God. 
Well, God continued to give Abram the same promise and promises really, and made it an official covenant. Okay. Made an official covenant about it. Now, though Abram had not seen the direct outcome and fulfillment of God's promise, and he was clearly frustrated by that, he continued to believe and trust God, and God counted that to him as righteousness. And that is something that we need to see. Even though we haven't seen it fulfilled yet, we still continue in full faith, expecting it to come forward because God promised. Thank you, God, for today and for your word. We ask that you continue to be with us and bless us and God just... uh guide us and open the doors that need to be opened to close the doors that need to be closed and give us the courage and the strength to do what it is that you're calling us to do today, this weekend, and this coming week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you guys got something out of it. Enjoyed this one. We'll see you next time. We're not going to be here next week. Kids and I will be traveling. So (laughs) next week will not be happening, but we will be back after that. God bless you guys. Have a great one. Bye-bye.